Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today is Saturday, January 31st, 2009, and we're recording this podcast during the 38th Critical Care Congress here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our guest today is Dr. Paul E. Wishmeyer, MD. He is a professor of anesthesiology at the University of Colorado Health Science Center in Denver, and he has had a long-standing interest in multiple areas focusing around nutrition in the critically ill or injured patient. They include nutrition therapy, uh, pharmaconutrition, and specifically what role total parenteral nutrition might have for the critically ill patient. He does both basic science research as well as he is involved in clinical trials, and he is a practicing intensivist, and he is currently co-chair of the Congress uh, Planning Committee for this year's Critical Care Congress, And he has taken a few minutes to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. Um, I thought we'd begin by giving you an opportunity to speak about some of the current controversies surrounding total parenteral nutrition. Uh, You know, as a clinician myself, we are often forced to use this agent, working with surgeons who have strong opinions about it. So maybe if you could take a few minutes and shed a little light on your opinions on this topic, that would be great. Sure. The real controversy is that currently almost all the data we have shows that in critical illness, the use of parental nutrition has not been shown to improve outcomes in our ICU patients. However, the issue really is is that virtually all of these studies were flawed and are not at all relevant to our current standards of care. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that randomizing patients with working guts to enteral versus parental nutrition is what many of these studies did. And this just is not a relevant comparison, and and we would never perform such a study today. But yet this is the data we're left with. Further, many of the studies deliver true hyperalimentation, which means they overfed patients. They drove hyperglycemia that we know is associated with infection. And speaking of hyperglycemia, none of these TPN trials done to date treated hyperglycemia. The glucoses were allowed to range up above 300 in many cases. And so much of the increased infectious morbidity, which was the major complications of these PN trials, may likely be due to the rampant hyperglycemia these studies were plagued by. So they weren't taking place in what you would consider the modern ICU, is that right? Not at all. Not at all. And finally, all of these trials were conducted with high doses of omega-6 lipids, which is, for the moment, still the only lipid we have available in the U.S., which we were finding may have adverse immune effects and likely contributed to possibly worsening the outcomes in these patients. So to the fundamentals, clearly in a patient with a working gut, early intral nutrition is by far superior and should be initiated and optimized in virtually all patients that it can be used in. The real issue is that we know from international surveys conducted by Dr. Darren Hyland and the Canadians on critical care nutrition in over 5,000 patients over the last two years that we only deliver 40 to 50% of the calories we prescribe for our patients, even up to 10 days after they've been admitted to the ICU. And in the U.S. ICUs, 
were the least successful of any ICUs in the world at delivering calories. We, on average, wait 60 hours or three days to even start any sort of enteral feeding. So we've gone from hyperalimentation to hypoalimentation or, or whatever. Or, or nor aliment, no alimentation at times. So, so the big question then, and, and, and you ask it well, is does this enormous calorie deficit that these patients accumulate matter? And using the same survey from Dr. Highland's group, the data shows that patients with normal BMIs BMIs that range between 25 and 35, the amount of page calories the patients receive probably does not have a great impact on outcome. However, in the low BMIs, the less than 25 BMIs, and the very high BMIs greater than 35, there was a very strong relationship between increasing calories and decreased mortality. Between I- increasing calories? Right. So if What I mean is such that for every, say, additional 500 calories you provide per day to these patients, there was a statistically significant reduction in their death rate. So these patients To to their target, obviously, and as you you mentioned. And and, and the maximum that was looked at was up to 2,000 calories. So for every 500 calories from zero to 2,000, you increase their daily delivery by in these very skinny or thin patients and the very obese patients, you reduce their mortality. So it looks like our lack of ability to feed in those patients may be truly affecting their survival in our ICUs. So this brings up a couple important points. And again, with your background as an anesthesiologist, you're you're obviously comfortable working with surgeons. I mean, these can often be the most controversial patients, right? If we could take a moment and let you speak about that in terms of delays, delays in feeding. So the question then, and you ask it again perfectly, becomes if you can't get the calories in intrally in these at-risk patients, how are you going to do it? And should it be through the early use of parental nutrition? So we're planning a trial, actually, to answer that question right now in 2,000 patients on an international scope called the Top-Up Trial. So stay tuned. We, We really would like to answer this question. But until then, when you do feel you need TPN, and clearly your surgeons are going to feel the need to use TPN frequently, as we all know. Um, And I would say that clearly, again, in these at-risk patients, you might want to consider early, given the data we're starting to accumulate, you want to minimize the risks from the parental nutrition itself. And there's a few simple interventions you can do that we think can maybe really make a difference. The first is clearly control glucose, probably the easiest and most effective risk reducer in parental nutrition patients. I would guess, pending the results of the, the, the sugar trial that's coming very soon, keeping the glucose from 140 to 180 is a good goal in a parental nutrition patient. Second, until we have the new omega-3 and structured lipids in the U.S., and hint, hint, they are coming, uh, consider reducing your omega-6 lipid infusions to possibly maybe just once a week. So once a week lipids in a patient who's quite sick should can prevent essential fatty acid deficiency and we think reduce risk. There's some data to support that. Third, if you're going to use less than 10 days of parental nutrition, consider keeping your parental nutrition calories, particularly from carbohydrates and fat, down, possibly less to 20, possibly less than 20 kcals per kilo per day, and maximize your protein delivery. And finally, we have data that just became available yesterday from the new Canadian Critical Care Nutrition Guidelines group that, that we're all a part of, which now gives glutamine a strongly recommended grade A recommendation at all patients on parental nutrition in the ICU, which I suppose leads us to the next question. Yeah. So let me, um, before we get to the glutamine, and, and I will ask it again, yeah. um, and I guess I have, I have two questions. One is, sure. uh, 
do you have an opinion about peripheral parenteral nutrition and, and all that? Can you just talk about that? Because it comes up in some hospitals I've been in, but not others. Absolutely. At the moment, there's no data to support the use of peripheral parental nutrition or to justify the risks it brings. It delivers small amounts of calories because of the issues with osmolarity and the concentrations are quite dilute that you can deliver. Um, the risk of vein sclerosis and infection are significant so that the benefit you might possibly receive is quite minimal versus the risk you take on. So, not so a, we don't see a role. You're not a big fan no, of that. The data would not support a role of, of that practice. And just, just talking for a couple more minutes about TPN because mm-hmm. this can become, I mean, it's, it's often controversial. Um, are, are there cases where, because you seem to be more of a fan of it, I, I know you've done research on it, than I would have imagined. Are there cases where the surgeon and you sort of feel could go either way on a particular case and depending on the type of surgery or protecting the anastomosis where we want to, because I know that there are some surgeons and some people that are pushing for giving early enteral nutrition in those cases with anastomoses versus TPN. And that's sort of what I wanted, one of the things I wanted to hear from you about. Sure. That's a, that's a, a great question, especially given recent data. As it turns out, the whole story of protecting the anastomosis is not really a story anymore. There was a Cochrane meta-analysis that was um, published just a few years ago that showed that in quite a number of trials, I believe seven, that feeding a surgical patient with a new anastomosis the day of surgery led to reduced mortality in those patients who were internally fed versus those that were left MPO. And in fact, the ileus that patients get after surgery is not caused by the surgeon or the operation alone, because if you've ever walked in the OR, you can actually watch them do a major abdominal operation, and the bowel keeps peristalsing. It's caused by the lack of feeding. So the stomach will so become it a self-fulfilling prophecy. It does. MPO leads to... More NPO. Yeah. Ileus. <laughs> yeah. And so actually, the ileus we cause is caused by us as physicians. It's atrogenic. So that's a really, really important point, I think. Yes. I, and And to be able to reduce mortality in general surgery is unheard of, because so few people die, but yet... This early feeding clearly did so in a very rigorous analysis. Um, so that was really helpful. Thank you. Sure. Um, I thought I'd let you take the next few minutes. There are a couple amino acids that are evidently friends of yours. And yes. so they're glutamine and arginine. So you learn about them in basic biochemistry. And here they are. So why don't you take a few minutes and uh, share sure. them? So starting with glutamine, as I said, uh, the new meta-analysis that the, the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group in conjunction with, with some of us in the U.S. have completed shows that in four level one and 13 level two randomized clinical trials of glutamine in the critical care patient who's requiring TPN, there's a very statistically significant reduction in mortality, infection, and length of stay when it is given to ICU patients who require parental nutrition. And can you emphasize just maybe fellows and things why in theory this might be helpful? Sure, absolutely. One of my laboratory's interests and a number of others around the world has been in how this effect might occur. And the first thing I think is key to understand is that glutamine levels in critically ill patients fall to very low levels within 24 to 48 hours of admission. This amino acid appears to be a vital mediator of the body's ability to respond to stress. And so when you run out of it in this short period of time, your body's ability to make key protective factors such as heat shock proteins, glutathione, and other highly vital agents to surviving critical illness becomes impaired. And so by replacing glutamine early, particularly IV, we're finding, we we believe we restore the abilities of the body to respond to stress and to regulate inflammation as the two are related. 
And this is what we think underlies the actual ability of glutamine to improve outcome in these patients. And if we went to our, either I guess to your guideline side or to our average uh, nutritionist, they should be able to help us figure out dosing that properly if we want to start giving that? Absolutely. And, and, and speaking of the guidelines, the soon-to-be-released SECM Aspen guidelines will be published in the May issue of the Journal of Parental and Internutrition and also in Critical Care Medicine, and they're going to give a grade-A recommendation to the use of glutamine in parental nutrition-requiring patients. But just a momentary primer on the dose, we believe a dose between 0.3 grams per kilo and 0.5 grams per kilo is the effective dose that will produce these results. And maybe just another word about glutamine, sure, sure, sure. As, it, as it turns out. Um, there's more exciting news to come, as, as right now there are a number of large randomized clinical trials of glutamine just finishing or ongoing. These include the NIH-funded Glendy trial of surgical ICU patients here in the U.S. and a 1,200-patient international redox trial is the name of it that's well underway. Um, so truly an exciting time for glutamine research, and there's more exciting news to follow. Well, and then and you mentioned, I guess, before, so... The patient you want me to think of it in is the patient that we're starting TPN on. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. There is some data for its use in other patients, but I want to emphasize we have this new very strong data that really points to glutamine potentially as a new standard of care in the TPN requiring patient and, and then us being able to deliver that. And so when I go back next week and I'm on service, I guess start it, right? Something, something strongly to think about. Okay. Absolutely. So moving on to arginine, um, this is another very controversial topic in the critical care nutrition world, and and there's new exciting data. Again, in a, in a new meta-analysis um, that we just completed with the Canadian group a week ago, we found that in 28 studies of over 3,000 patients in the perioperative setting who are having major surgery, the kind of patients that come to the ICU, Patients treated with arginine-containing formulas had a 40% reduction in the risk of post-op infections such as surgical site infection. Now, this is a big finding because there are approximately 500,000 surgical site infections that occur in the U.S. each year at a cost of over a billion dollars. It's projected in the U.S. alone. This data also revealed that perioperative use of these arginine-containing formulas reduced post-operative length of stay by about two days. And if you imagine that there are 20 or 30 million people that have these surgeries each year, the potential for this to have a major impact on healthcare costs is, is significant. And these results held true in subgroup analyses, including whether the patient had upper GI surgery, lower GI surgery, ENT surgery, or cardiac surgery. All of these have been studied and show similar results. The data was strongest in patients who received the formulas throughout their perioperative setting, pre- and postoperatively, rather than as postoperatively. Can you can you take a second again for somebody who may just be getting into this? Uh, is the theory that why this would work similar to glutamine that it's uh, not not? No, this there? is this is actually another area that we've made great advances in understanding the mechanism of effect. And the exciting finding here is is something we owe to Dr. Juan Ochoa at the University of Pittsburgh who's helped us understand that the mechanism for arginine's benefit in the surgical patient revolves around arginine's ability to prevent the acute immunosuppression that follows surgery and trauma. And this appears to be directly related to the acute arginine deficiency and then T-cell dysfunction that we can measure that occurs in these patients following surgery. So this is the immune enhancing. This is the immune enhancing, but that's a word prevent, that prevention. none of us like. Actually, no? we, I think we, we in this field would like you to use immune modulating. Because okay. you can't label all nutrition as immune-enhancing okay. or immune-suppressive. Um, there are many nutrients that modulate the immune system. So for the way you're describing, 
this, at least in theory, in arginine, it prevents immunosuppression. It Is does. that right? It okay. does, and, and we really feel strongly about that, which leads us to the fact that this only seems to be present, this deficiency in surgery and trauma. It doesn't seem to be true in sepsis. And sepsis is not an immune deficient state, which leads us to the real confusion and controversy here around the use of arginine in sick patients. And in terms of arginine's use in the septic or infected patient in the ICU, the recommendations have not changed. They are clearly that these formulas are not recommended to be used in an ICU patient with an ongoing acute infection or with sepsis, which makes sense given Dr. Ochoa's mechanistic findings that this is something that stimulates the immune response when it's depressed, like after surgery, but not something you would want to stimulate oh, the, the immune the response. compensatory anti-inflammatory. Right. I mean, the comp- exactly. the CARS response, right. this seems to abrogate that. But in the septic patient, it probably drives the inflammatory response. And that may be why some studies have shown signals of harm. And until we have new data, this is not something we would recommend to be used in the infected or septic ICU patient. Um, and is this, again, a... A TPN versus enteral nutrition? or No, this is solely an enteral nutrition intervention that is one that, in, in our dreams, would be something that every patient prior to surgery should be receiving. Would then. be receiving okay. um, to try to prevent, ultimately, the infections that, that, that we talked about in the ICU. So glutamine, though, is reasonable if, if I have a critically ill septic patient? Absolutely. And they're getting Those are the TPN. people who need it most. Okay. So this is an important uh, conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um. Uh, are there any other points you want to make about arginine before we go on to epiglov? So the, the big picture you said is arginine is in a post-operative surgical patient to prevent infection, 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 infection. And, and reduce length of stay. So in the perioperative setting, arginine is incredibly effective uh, and, and to me seems like it should become standard of care um, or at least be studied in, in the definitive large trial. The data is so strong, over 3,000 patients, as I said, studied in 28 trials. But I, uh, do you see major obstacles between where we are now and that becoming a standard of care? There have been. Sadly, the use of this has not um, been up, uptaken in the U.S. to any great degree, and some of that has been because of the confusion around what patients it helps and what patients it doesn't help or may hurt. And so I think clearly the distinction to take home is in surgical patients, this is clearly beneficial. And in septic patients, we don't have data that it's beneficial. In fact, it may be harmful. And I think if we can clarify that, we can help people understand how to use it. Uh, one other area as a medical intensivist working in a surgical ICU that I have been using, uh, and the data seems to be a little bit more solid, although, again, it hasn't taken off because it's one of these areas where you want to use it as a drug, but in order to get it approved, it's through your nutrition department, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you would be interested in talking about that, but this yeah. is the whole EPA-GLA diet, the icosapentaenoic acid, gamma-linolenic acid, oxipa, um, that's used to immunomodulate in ARDS and sepsis, so I'm going to let you talk about that. Absolutely. This, along with the glutamine and arginine stories, is the most exciting advance in critical care nutrition to date, um, at least the way the data stands now. Again, the Journal of Parental and Intral Nutrition recently published a meta-analysis of all the uh, fish oil studies, EPA, GLA studies performed to date in the ARDS acute lung injury patients. And this data revealed the use of intral formulas containing EPA and, and DHA and GLA significantly reduced days in the ICU and days on the ventilator. But more importantly, the use of these fish oil omega-3-containing formulas reduced organ failures by 83% in the ICU patients receiving them, and even more importantly, reduced mortality an amazing 
in ARDS and acute lung injury patients. So it, was a, it was a very, it was a hard endpoint in, in some it of It really studies. was. And, and this was the intention to treat data, no less. The mortality effect was greater in the, in the study patients, but there was a 50% reduction in mortality in the omega-3 formula receiving patients versus standard. So this is a huge treatment effect and is based on a, quite a number of randomized controlled trials from large centers around the world. Each study was greater than 100 patients. Presently, I'm not aware of a more effective treatment in the ICU for ARDS and acute lung injury. And is this something that um, has been or will be integrated into guidelines that you're involved with? Absolutely. Um, the SCCM and Aspen guidelines uh, that will be published in May give this a grade A recommendation and recommend okay. that all patients with acute lung injury and ARDS um, should receive this. The Canadian guidelines also give it their strongest recommendation. And one of the things that um, actually we all have to deal with now is economic issues. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what recommendations you would give when trying to convince people that this is sure. economically okay. Because I have gotten the, this is more expensive than the usual feeding. And it, it just seems silly to me because I know that the, 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 the cost in general compared with other things we do isn't so high. I've looked at this with my pharmacy as well, and, and we've discovered the cost of an ARDS patient per day um, begins with the ventilator cost, which is about, in most hospitals, 1000 to $1,500 a day. The ICU bed itself is between five dollars and $7,000. You're, you're looking at a cost of an ARDS patient per day of about ten dollars to $12,000. The cost of this formula per day maximum is about $25. So the cost savings here um, range into the tens of thousands of dollars per day, um, which made the case, at least in my hospital, a much easier one to make. So, right. but you and can imagine, you can imagine the magnitude of scope of savings and 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 life savings that this has potentially got. Yeah, and and I remember the the Pontus Aruda study that I keep quoting. That's from a few years ago now. I did a podcast yes. with them then. That was in '06. Yes. So. And, and, and I should mention there are ongoing trials with this by the ARDSnet. The uh, Eden Omega trial is examining actually the pharmacologically active portion of the formulas that exist, the actual just the fish oil and the antioxidants that are contained in these formulas by itself in a large ARDS setting. And so there's new trials ongoing. But right now the data is so strong with no signal of harm that um, it, would hard to, it would be hard to say this would not be recommended for all patients with ARDS. And um, again, just to conclude on that, that, or to go backwards, sort of, from what I've read and I've tried to read the mechanism on this on each paper, mm -hmm. it seems that it isn't completely understood, but the concept is that you're trying to sort of, this one it really is you're trying to immunomodulate, you're trying to calm down the septic, res yes. the inflammatory response. An interesting question to pose to people is, do they know the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of their diet here in the United States? Uh, I will tell you that, that we are evolved as humans to have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of 1 to 1. That's what we were evolved on. Um, ours in the United States is about 18 to 1 now, omega-6 to omega-3. So it sets our patients up before they come to the ICU in a very pro-inflammatory, immune-dysregulated state. So what we're really doing here is correcting this to the way we were evolved to function. And what the omega-3 fatty acids do is they produce less inflammatory lipid mediators that correctly regulate the immune system, in some cases are anti-inflammatory. Um, they also are key precursors to what are called resolvins and protectins, which are key molecules that help to stop the immune response, for instance, the neutrophil invasion of the lung and ARDS once it's started so that it doesn't persist 
and cause the acute lung injury and the incredible inflammatory injury that we see in ARDS. So there's a number of key mechanisms that we're beginning to understand that underlie this clinical treatment effect. Right. And I remember talking with some other people about this, I guess, Dr. Eric Pact, and he said that this really is the the septic patient with ARDS. That's the patient that he at least recommended that yes. we think about this. Do you agree with that? I would completely agree with that. Okay. So the, yeah, the acute lung injury, the ARDS patient with sepsis is absolutely, is absolutely where these formulas for the moment, the data is targeted. Great. Well, this has been terrific. We've had a great opportunity today to speak with Dr. Paul E. Wishmeyer, MD. He's a professor of anesthesiology at the University of Colorado Health Science Center, and he's been speaking with us today about nutrition, the complex, controversial area of nutrition in the critically ill patient. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks very much. This concludes our podcast for Saturday, January 31st, 2009. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. The best way to make sure you are prepared for the critical care boards is by attending the Adult and Pediatric Multiprofessional Review Courses, MCCRC, at the Society's Critical Care Academy. Critical Care Academy will be held at the historic Hilton San Francisco in California from July 12th to 18th, 2009. Critical Care Academy is designed for practitioners who are preparing for the critical care subspecialty exams, as well as those seeking review of and updates on critical care. Critical Care Academy also will feature the American Board of Internal Medicine, ABIM, Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process, SCP, Module Review as a Precourse. Learn more at www.sccm.org.